Welcome to IVF Tales, a podcast hoping to make the world of fertility treatment less lonely. We want to start conversations about different fertility journeys to empower your decisions and build a community that understands. Each week we will speak to someone whose journey to having a child has taken a little bit more than a few vodka cruises. We are your hosts, Tiffany and Amy. Hi friends, it's Tiffany here. In today's interview, Amy and I spoke to Susan. Uh, Susan is American and conceived her first son via IVF whilst still living in the States. Um, Once they moved to Australia, they decided to look at international adoption and how to go about that living abroad um, from their home country. So Susan and her husband eventually adopted from China Um, And in her interview, we speak about the differences a little bit between the American system and the Australian system, as well as what it is like to adopt internationally um, and some of the challenges that come with that. Um, But it was a really good interview. Amy and I really enjoyed our time speaking to Susan, and we hope that if adoption is something that you are interested in, this may help with those decisions and those thoughts. And... Yeah, we hope you guys are all well. Okay, cool. Um, so thank you, thank you so much for joining us today, Suzanne, on the podcast. You're welcome. Uh, would you like to just get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and um, who's in your family and where you're located? Sure thing. Um, so again, my name is Suzanne. You can probably tell from my accent, I am an American I'm living in Australia. So my story is quite varied, but I think still important for people to hear um, that they could possibly relate to. So I am... Um, let's just say old. Um, (laughs) I've lived a few years. I've been married 23 years to um, an amazing husband. And we have two children, a 12 year old and a four and a half year old. um, And they've both come to our family in different ways. um, But we're very happy to be where we are today. Yeah, lovely. Um, What do you you just want to get us started with uh, your story? And you can start at the beginning or wherever you'd like to to sort of pick up? Yeah, I think the most important part really is the beginning of going all the way back to when I was a kid. Um, I had yep. two cousins who were adopted. And back then in the 80s, I don't know why they were adopted or any of that type of stuff because, you know, people didn't talk or share their stories. So I don't even know my auntie's whole story. Um, but yes, yeah, so I grew up with these two cousins that they were just family, just like anybody else. And so it was always normal. So adoption was always on my brain, never in a million years. I'm one of like 21 cousins, never in a million years thought I would experience um, infertility or any of those issues. There's twins rampant in my family. Um, And so was very shocked that uh, three years into our attempt to conceive a child, we still were unable to do that um, naturally. Well, I think we really only spent a year trying completely on our own because I was already pushing 30, so we were getting in to see the doctors because we knew that we were going to need help um, very quickly. Mm -hmm. Lovely. So uh, what what sort of prompted you to 
investigate that you, you would need help conceiving if you know that's what you wanted yeah to do. no I was one of as, as many women unexplained infertility but the prompt was I just wasn't getting periods regularly so every month I was actually thinking I was pregnant but not being pregnant which was yeah. uh, quite devastating in a very odd way um, mm-hmm. so that was just the initial conversation with doctors and the initial you know try this medicine try that oh I mm-hmm. Many, as many women know, many different attempts to get almost, it seems, nowhere. Lovely. And so um, was this all based in the States or was this over here in Australia? It was in America that I went through the um, infertility doctor process. Okay. And so this was with your husband. Yes. Um, so there was nothing sort of on his side of the fertility no, angle? No, we were just classified truly unexplained Mm, yeah, that's a really hard diagnosis. How did you feel with that? I think in hindsight, it's that, what do you mean we can't figure this out? It seems like the system should be, at the time, you know, we should be able to figure this out. It's, you know, uh, early 2000s that we should know what works and how it doesn't work. And now, you know, 12 years later, there has been no, I think, no growth in understanding the women's body and how it works. So that's just kind of a ongoing other side to the whole story that we don't understand um, the amazing bodies that we have and how to, how they work. Yeah. Um, what sort of, if you don't mind me asking, what sort of investigations did your doctor suggest for you over there? Oh, I, I, can't remember the exact details at, at this point, but okay. everything from, you know, the checking the tubes to testing the okay. blood work at all the different times of the month and scans and, yep. you know, I feel like every yep. invasive but worthwhile procedure was done. <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't just sort of a blasé sort of diagnosis. He, he They did investigate. Yeah. And sort of, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so when did you and your husband start to talk about or explore other options to create your family? I think we started talking about it pretty quickly once we realized it was going to be a challenge where we, what we felt, felt, you know, morally, ethically, and just even emotionally. And right away, we felt very much at a crossroads of how far did we go medically when we knew um, that worldwide there's heaps of children um, that could be a part of our family and be loved as much as we loved our nieces and nephews and other family friends that we just knew our hearts were open to both options. Um, mm-hmm. My husband was at the time active duty in the United States um, with the military. So that helped because we had some easier medical options with cheaper cost because of the healthcare coverage, which is very different than over here. Um, mm-hmm. We did initially with the doctors we met through that, we felt comfortable pursuing and going to the next step for what we, you would consider a, a natural um, biological child, but always knew that there was, that as soon as it got too hard, um, we were open to adoption, but we wanted so we had both things open in front of us from the beginning um but let's pursue one at a time and we started down the infertility path um with the doctors and the specialist Mm -hmm. and did you guys actually undergo any um like IVF treatment or you just sort of got to that point of your diagnosis and then decided this isn't for us we um so we had um I experienced an ectopic pregnancy um, okay. just, I forget which exact hormone I was on. I wasn't on a lot of hormones at that particular point in time. 
um, when I experienced the ectopic pregnancy. So the doctor said after that and after checking my tubes, there's no sign of blockage, but clearly I had an ectopic. They recommended IVF. And so we decided as after much prayer and consultation with people in our heads um, that we give IVF one shot, that we would see where that led, see what that process was like. Um, and miraculously, we had a huge success with the egg retrieval, almost too successful. Uh, and my uh, current 12-year-old son was a five-day embryo that was transferred, just one embryo. Um, and he was born nine months later. Followed, oh, wow. Yes. Now, absolute miracle story of success once we started IVF. However, my body did not take to um, the frozen embryo transfers. I was unable to conceive um, after four attempts uh, yeah. in that process, which was devastating to think. Some There was no, again, no explained reason. The doctors couldn't say, this is why your body's rejecting them. And with still some frozen embryos remaining, they said their recommendation is that we started over with IVF. And to my husband and I, that wasn't an option. We didn't want to go all the way back through that process mm -hmm. again. Yeah. Were they suggesting that maybe you get your embryo, like start again and get your embryos tested? The first agreement was to start again. There wasn't yet the discussion of what we do once we started again, but that, yes, there was just an issue. My body was not dealing well with, I don't, we, again, they had no reason. <laughs> just, you know, yeah. the gut instinct of, oh, this isn't working. Let's try the other path again. Let's try something else. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I don't know anyone's body that sort of agrees with the whole process. You know, it's really hard on, on, on a lot of people's bodies who, you, you know, undergo fertility treatment. So I can completely understand you saying that it's not, you know, sometimes you do have to just know your own personal limitations yeah. to sort of say no more. And completely. And to be perfectly honest, I was very blind to a lot of the feelings and emotions I was having. And my husband mm -hmm. has my rock at one point said enough is enough. This is actually tormenting you in ways you don't understand emotionally. And he was right. Um, and so at that point in time, when we closed the door that we weren't going to seek <clears throat> excuse me, when we weren't going to seek any more medical, our hearts just instantly went, we want to adopt, we want our, our, our hearts and our home is big enough for more children. So we're not going to be stopped, because I can't conceive one. Lovely. So would you like to walk us through that process? Uh, the adoption process. So, so we were at that point in time still in the United States, and my husband got offered work over here in Australia. So we moved over thinking that we wouldn't be able to adopt as Americans in Australia. Um, fortunately, the American system, as you probably have heard, is a lot more flexible um, and easier to navigate than the Australian system, which is very sad um, that there are many children domestically that um, could be offered such a better life if adoption was available for them. Uh, anyway, but so we found out that we could do that. We found a program in the U.S. that would work with us, that would go through all the paperwork and all the hurdles of us not actually physically being able to sit in their office <laughs> um, to do the consultations, to do all that type of the home studies and things. And we were able to find um, the, the agency in America that would work with us to adopt out of China. Okay. Yep. 
Um, sorry. So would you um, just like to briefly just provide a little bit of a comparison between the American and Australian systems, just sort of what you what you know from your yeah. own experience? Yeah, just because I'm, I'm not fully versed on it and I know some of our listeners won't be either. No, so my knowledge of the Australian system is limited, but I think the thing that is important that a friend of mine who's Australian who was in the system she's one of those ones that they had just been approved to adopt and she fell pregnant naturally. So, um, but she, her feelings, her knowledge, everything about it is as soon as you have that inclination, it's going to take a while. It's just going to take a long time. So as soon as you think that's a road you want to go, you need to take that first step, um, go through the process of applying, getting started because it's just not simple, fast, or easy in any way. And that, to me, is the starkest comparison. We were able to start the process and bring our son home oh, roughly 18, 20 months um, after starting the process, which is unheard of for an wow. international adoption in Australia. So that, like, mm. there's many levels, and I don't want to debate some of my feelings. <laughs> Of course, yeah. But the biggest one, I think, in us, the American healthcare system is so different that children with disabilities are accepted better because of the state-funded healthcare system. They don't want a lot. So the concept that there aren't kids eligible for adoption really reflects that they're not healthy kids eligible for adoption. Is my opinion of the Australian system. Yeah. I mean, I've never heard, I mean, just the fact that you got your son within two years, let's say, that I've never heard of that in Australia. You know, you start talking um, about adoption and automatically you're looking at upwards of four or five years is what I've heard um, and even longer depending on which which country you adopt from. Um, And I know... um, I was reading because I'm on some of the adoption pages on Facebook because it was an option that my husband and I explored ourselves. Um, And I know some states in Australia only adopt out a certain amount of children per year too, like domestically, like you said. So I think my understanding, and I could be very wrong, is that in South Australia you can only adopt two children. There's only two children sort of put up for adoption every um, 12 months or so. So I think it's very, I think you're right. It's very restricted. It's very, um, and I'm sure there's reasonings for that to a certain extent, but, um, yeah, it's, it's quite difficult to adopt within Australia and, and internationally as well. So another factor is your, your history and the, the way of loving and embracing the stolen generation and acknowledging that we don't just want to rip children out of families However, the foster care system is far from perfect for them to stay in indefinitely as well. And so that's, I think, a part of the Australian. In in America as well, if you wanted to adopt a newborn baby in, domestically, the wait would probably be several years, three to four to five years as well. Um, internationally, there are millions of children sitting in orphanages around the world um, and, you know, my son was 18 months when we brought him home, has a minor, minor medical condition that in a Western world is not an issue. Um, in a place like China, it is because they don't have the access to the healthcare and medicine like we do. Mm-hmm. So what made you choose China or, um, or was that just sort of the country that was recommended for you guys when you started the process? The, there's two two sides to that story. One, we have a dear um, friend who 
she grew up in China a little bit and she was in her teenage years and her family had found two little girls on the street and had brought them in and taken care of them. And so hearing her story, they were Australian. Um, they were unable to adopt because their family was already five children and the Australian system wouldn't let them process an adoption. Um, they did, the, the family worked very hard with American agencies and got those two little girls adopted before they left China to return to Australia. So my heart was opened to China in a way I'd never seen hearing her story of these little girls. And that made us then just research and through the American system, and I would imagine Australia is the same, your time in country, your time in the visa processes, all of those things are fastest in China. Other countries, you sometimes have to visit multiple times. I couldn't, could not imagine flying to Africa and meeting a child and returning to Australia to wait to then go back. Um, whereas China, that all happens pretty seamlessly in a two-week process in country. Wow, that's really fascinating because I've never never heard of that before. Like, again, it's just my own. I haven't, yeah, really encountered people adopting from China before, so that's really interesting. Um, so, do you want to walk us through the process of when sort of you were you were told that someone or like you had your son had been, you know, allocated for you? I'm sorry, I don't know the language around it, so I'm not quite sure what to use. You know, I don't want to be offensive to anybody. Well, you're not offensive to me because I feel the same. Like, I, what is the stereotypical language? It's it's it's, and even I I you know this is lovely conversation to have, but realizing now that my oldest son is 12. I also, for both of them, what's my story and what's their story? So language yeah. that I would use and they might use is very different. different. Um, but yes, so the process through the American system, and I think it is very similar in the Australian and the internet, once you reach the international sector, um, is that you have to get fully approved. So you've done home studies where they've come out to your home several times. You've even little things, um, you, you might not be thrown off right away for something, but obviously going through infertility, I saw a counselor at some point to deal with emotions. Well, I needed to re-see a counselor to be ticked off that I was, you know, mentally stable. Um, you know, things like that, that you just, all this paperwork and, you know, how much money do you have? Can you raise another child? All of that stuff. Once you are fully approved, you then, um, for us in America, we waited and our caseworker as she, or social worker, as she saw um, kids become eligible, available, allocated, there isn't a good word. Um, she then, we were told she would contact us and we are very, very lucky. We feel God worked very smoothly in this process that once we were eligible a week or two later, she sent us um, some information on our son um, and that we then got more information and read through everything in his profile. They put together a whole medical profile, whole what they've done to see where the child sits um, for their age and stuff. And so we had pediatrician review that with us as well, just to make sure we weren't missing anything in the fine print of how they were diagnosing him as a child, which again, it seems very you're playing God because you're reading a file about a baby and trying to decide if that will be your baby is very surreal. Um, but yet I'm glad we went through it. Glad we did it. And so for us, it was that first file that we saw instantly saw his beautiful eyes in that picture and knew that he was our son and knew that we would take the next step 
of going mm-hmm. the process to bring him home. And how old was your first, your eldest <laughs> child at this stage? He turned nine when we were in China. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a seven year age gap between them. Yep. And how did you sort of talk to him about it mm-hmm. and sort of, um, yeah, bring him, make him aware of the situation? From So from the very beginning, once we, my husband and I made the decision um, that we were going to make the next step. So he was seven. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, he, we instantly brought it to him and said, you know, we feel we'd like to have another child this is how we'd like to do it through adoption. We talked to very open and honest with about him. We're going to have to go through this process because he had to sit in on the home studies and all of that type of stuff. Um, at first, I think as an only child at seven, I don't even think he truly understood anything we meant or really cared. Um, and I'll be quite honest. I told him we were going to bring home a baby sister from China because that's what you always read here about children in China, that it's all baby girls. Um, which that of course did not excite him at all. (laughs) Um, but he just, you know, we prayed about it. We talked about it. We made it kind of an open thing. We instantly found my husband and I are pretty reserved as we're going through something afterwards. We love to talk about our experiences. So we hadn't shared with a lot, but instantly his teachers at school were like, He's praying for a sibling. Would you like to tell us more? <laughs> um, he just has a beautiful open heart for whatever, because I think we were open and honest with him. And he was at that age at seven where I think you really could be um, three, four-year-old. It would be much harder to talk them through that process, knowing at that point it still took another 18 months until um, it was another year, 14 months until we even saw a picture of Jack's where it actually even became real. Yeah. Oh, lovely. It sounds like he um, sort of got what he wanted then. So (laughs) the day we told him that we looked at and we showed him the pictures of his baby brother, he was ecstatic that it was a boy (laughs) um, and that he, in theory, had won. Not that it was a competition. Um, (laughs) Yes, no, unbelievable. And they are, for a seven-year age gap, they are two peas in a pod that just, from the minute they met, they were brothers and they are brothers and they are we're a family. It's amazing to see um, what can happen in our hearts. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. Would you like to walk us through or, you know, just give us a quick rundown on how sort of, you know, the process worked with you guys going over to China to pick him up and how you felt about all of that? Uh, yeah. So it's, um, it's you end up seeing this picture and knowing and getting approved within a couple of weeks period. So it was right around Christmas time. So I actually took that picture and made a little Christmas tree ornament because he instantly was a part of our family, but yet not there. And then you wait. Um, So that actually, that little bit is harder because there's now a face and a child that's growing and you are not a part of those milestones. We knew he was just um, 12 months at that point. So he'd be starting to learn to walk and doing all those things. He was a little behind from living in the orphanage. Um, But yet, so the longing is very interesting process, but it's just visas, paperwork, consulate approvals, um, so much technical stuff that you get bogged down in. We, again, we're going through the American system. So in China, we were partnered with um, all American families and, you know, a translator that worked with us to get us through the process in country. You're there two weeks. 
Um, you can get there as early as you want. We tried to spend a few days touristing to adjust um, to the time changes and to be just kind of really prepared for what would happen. So within being there a couple days, uh, you go to a building. It's the craziest, stark, old, you know, colonial type building. And he was sleeping and put in our arms and you take him, they, you know, send you off to your hotel with, you know, here's a little bit of stuff. But, you know, we had been told bring formula, bring nappies, bring everything, um, clothes. You know, he pretty much came with the clothes on his back, um, which is fine. We were happy to provide all those things for our son. Um, and then 24 hours later, they ask you if you want to continue the process and you say yes. And then you sign the paperwork and legally he became our son. Wow, so they give you sort of a grace period where you could say, okay, no, this is not for me. In the Chinese system, it is. It's a 24-hour period from when you meet them that, yes, you could. I I can't imagine it. I know there's many stories right now, families in America that are dissolving adoptions. It's a very personal, heartfelt thing for us. The minute we saw his picture, we knew he was our son. The minute we held him, we knew that he was our son and he was our son. <laughs> Yeah. Um, oh, I had a question and, and then I've forgotten it. So that must have been such a surreal um, moment for you guys. Like if you're sleeping, you know, like just being handed your child. Yes. It just must have been so crazy because like you almost like you were dreaming. Like I can only just imagine how you, how excited and how apprehensive and how emotional you guys must have been feeling after that big, you know, like it's not like your fertility – no fertility journey is easy, but then on top of that, the adoption process, like just, and finally having it in front of you, you know, so that must've been crazy. Well, and there's also the bittersweet anti-climatic point of he's to us, he's our son. He has probably mm-hmm. never heard someone speak English. He has never mm-hmm. seen somebody with our color skin. He has never, he's never been outside of the four walls of the orphanage and hospital that he went to and from. And so it was a complete shock. He woke up in my other's, my husband's arms and was terrified. Of course, um, a poor darling, yeah. You know, tried to scramble out of his arms to run to the first Chinese person near him, which was somebody from the orphanage, but not someone he knew um, because he just, but yet within 24 hours, um, we have pictures of him being carried by my husband in one of those, you know, baby carrier things. And he's, gripping my husband's t-shirt because he does he knows that this weird building we're in again is the place where he could get taken away from us um and you know at 17 months he's gripping my husband's t-shirt because he wants to stay with him so thank god that his love you know he knew that what we were offering him as a family was better than where he was i feel like children aren't given enough credit for how mm. instinctive they are with reading situations and things like that. And and sometimes us as adults can actually hinder that natural um, inherent, um, you know, urge that they sort of have as kids to whether or not to trust people. Um, and I think that's really interesting that, you know, within 24 hours he'd adjusted and, and sort of felt comfortable and, like that's a that's just a huge adjustment for such a little person to make and he's sort of just taken it in his stride, you know. Yeah, and there's still I don't think we will ever fully understand what states of children's brains are in terms of experiencing trauma of having been, exactly. you know, in a situation where 
he medically needed help and his parents, the only way they could do that was to leave him. And that, you know, that love that transcends for them, for him, will, I will be ever, forever grateful and thankful to people I probably will never meet that their love for him took over to the point of what was best for him. And, mm-hmm. and that, yes, then, so the not even knowing that clearly, I think now he has some separation anxiety. And well, of course, naturally in his brain, he knows that he was taken away from one thing. And then also for us, we created that trauma by taking him away from the only Mm -hmm. thing he knew, even though it was an orphanage and not an ideal place to live and to thrive and to grow, it was Mm -hmm. home to him. But like, but, but in that moment, he also knew he wanted to stay with that. So, um, yeah, no, their brains are amazing, good and bad. Um, mm-hmm. What we might face later on, we don't know. We will always be open and honest and love him and tell him the story the best we can. He has many pictures of those days we were with him in China, the pictures of the first time we held him, um, the first, first time he was held by his brother to know how much how much we love him and we wanted him to be in our family. Mm-hmm. And so culturally within your family so you guys are um caucasian and your background is based in the u.s so culturally you don't have any ties to china have you guys done anything within your family to sort of integrate more chinese culture for your son so he can sort of learn about sort of his background and his heritage yes completely um we are avid avid readers and so instantly the child's bookshelf as I surveyed it, it was not adequate. (laughs) Um, And so my firstborn son had many, many books. And so we now have many, many more books. There's not a lot out there to deal with. Um, You can get, you know, so we're just opening everything. We want pictures that look like him in books. We want pictures that talk about their stories about animals, you know, a little um, bird that can't find his mom and a bear brings them home. You know, there's so many stories out there that are always the happy ending. You know, the bird gets lost and then finds the mama bird and they look the same. And, but looking for books where even animals are in different situations, along with looking for books where there are pictures of Chinese people and that that's normal and natural. We have a handful of um, Vietnamese friends that my older son has, you know, that's always interesting to see, you know, they straight away, the little boys going, wait a minute, how's that your brother? He doesn't look like you, but my son is without missing a beat, but he's my brother. Um, There's no, there doesn't need to be any more than that in terms of describing um, who he is, that he's their brothers. So, so yeah, so that's our first step. Um, I've always, it seems cliche. I've always loved Chinese food. So we eat a lot of Chinese food. He is a little four-year-old boy, plain noodles with butter and salt and, you know, some good old-fashioned bickies and ice cream. You know, he's not fussed about those cultural things. He, you know, he's just a kid mm-hmm. living and thriving and eating. Um, but yeah, we, my older son is learning Chinese. Will that transcend? He was so little when he came over here. It was only, it was important that we just teach him English at the time. So he's probably lost yeah. all of his natural Chinese tonal knowledge that he had but we really didn't have much other choice um Mm -hmm. he and then he experiences a lot of separation anxiety so at three when we thought about taking him to Sunnybank for some Chinese there was no way we were gonna be able to put him in a class and leave him because his separation stuff was too strong it wasn't um it wasn't an option at that point um 
Yeah, hopefully, yeah, we'll just always be open and ready to learn, to teach, to for us, for everyone. Yep. Uh, just some of the research I've read on transracial adoptions and things like that, it can be quite hard because I think um, historically um, the dialogue hasn't been there mm. um, and sort of like you said back in the 80s, people were just adopted and not sort of it was just like, okay, you'll just assimilate to our yeah. culture and our family, which their intentions were right. Um However, you know, as we learn and grow and develop more in society, we have a greater understanding of these things. And, yeah, so I just find it really interesting to sort of hear um, how people sort of, you know, adjust their life because it's a big adjustment for you guys as well, like coming from, you know, a background where, you know, like you have no cultural ties to another country. And, I mean, even here in Australia, you know, like, I mean – uh, I'm a white woman and I just I don't have any cultural ties to any country apart from really Australia and even then like not even our indigenous culture so um I find that whole aspect really sort of intriguing for me how how people adjust those things within their families it is and that is um through the American system there are questions in your home study process there are times when it's openly talked about Everything's talked mm-hmm. about the potentials for trauma, the potentials for um, this cross-cultural, what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? Um, I did a whole, we made paper lanterns for Chinese New Year at his kindy and the teachers are so lovely at his kindy. They hung all the paper lanterns on the ceiling for like a month that the kids had made to represent Chinese New Year because that is, it was mm-hmm. a definition of our son and our son is a part of their program. Um, so we have not experienced any feet, you know, any pushback from wanting to embrace and do those things with him. Um, and we just will always, will always, again, as Americans in Australia, uh, we, we have some traditions that are very American that we're teaching him, um, 4th of July, Thanksgiving, Halloween. So I feel we are this, uh, even though it is very different, but very the same, we might look the same. Um, there is still culture that elude, that's underneath all of us and that my husband and I have traveled the world. We want our both of our sons to know that who they are and that they are able to do what they want anywhere in the world. It's, it's yeah. There are many options available to us as Westerners. Yeah. Have you considered adopting any more children or is this sort of um, you you feel like your family's complete now? The, the whole family complete is always a very hard question. I think when you initially start down the infertility journey and you lose that control, which is the hardest factor that I've experienced that so many of my friends have had complete control. I will have, you know, three children. They will be two years apart. And da, da, da. so losing that control almost has sent me into the opposite of I just want a million children. Um, it's not feasible. It's not practical emotionally, physically, financially. Um, so at this point in time, our family is our family and it will stay where it is. But I'm not, yeah. I, I have no idea what will happen next, but I'm not opposed to anything. Mm-hmm. My heart is just open for where God will lead us as a family. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really lovely to hear too. And I think that's really comforting because I think there's this sort of, I mean, even myself, you know, going through fertility treatment. I don't know about you, Tiff, but you sort of have this obsession with, like, when is my family going to feel complete? Mm. You know, if we have this next baby, is that going to be it for us? You know, and I think that's a really lovely way to look at it. That's just being open to whatever comes your way. You yeah. know, just sort of, yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I, 
not necessarily truly important to the whole story, but I did actually fall pregnant right after the adoption and had a miscarriage. So Mm. I think that even leads me more wondering back into, even though I'm in my forties, I did conceive, could we go down this path again? But then also practically going, I'm in my forties. I think it's that we focus on the two beautiful children that we have and the life that we have and will our doors. And I think it'd be more, um, we are, applied and very soon will be Australian citizens. Do we open the door to foster care? Do we open the door to just there are children in this world that need love and support, um, whether or not it's short term or long term? That's more, I think, where we're kind of, I haven't closed that door. Don't tell my husband. I hope he doesn't listen to this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He's thinking, oh, oh, my goodness. He knows, he knows. Is there anything you'd like to add, Suzanne, before we sort of wrap it up? I I don't think so. I think it's just, for me, it's just so amazing that each and every family has a different story. And I think all of those stories are very important. I have, you know, family in the U.S. going through different things. I won't talk about their stories, but to see that families are different. We're in 2020. um, We don't need to worry about the size, the shape, the color, Um, we just, there's so much openness and so much love and so many options out there. It's just beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, um, too, there's a new podcast out called, uh, led by a heartstring. I think it's called, um, and he actually is adopted himself. And I think sort of, he's documenting his quest to find his biological Mm. parents, Um, But he's also interviewing other people who have been adopted during the process as well. So I think that might be just like a little launch, you know, little segue for people who may be interested in hearing more about this sort of stuff. He's got a good podcast out as well. So um, I can provide a link in the show notes. But yeah, I think it's I think it's really important that everyone understands that families are created differently. And I think sometimes there becomes this obsession. I know for me growing up, it was always, you know, blood is thicker than water. That was sort of what I was told, which I just don't, as an adult, I don't agree with that at all. Like it's, it's sort of your family is what you make of it. So um, I definitely think that is a valuable um message for everyone as well. Yeah, and there's there's nothing I heaps of photos, heaps of times where we've spent with grandparents, cousins. He is just another kid in their life that they love through and through. It it's amazing. You might the blood is thicker than water is shattered when you see how people you can fall in love with anyone. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, if there's nothing else you'd like to add, uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Suzanne. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like listening to the podcast and would like to share your story, we will pop the link in the show notes. Be sure to hit subscribe so when we release new episodes, it lands straight into your listen now. If you could also leave us a review for the show, that would be so appreciated. No words are needed, just stars. If you're on the Apple app, scroll down to the bottom of the podcast page and tap to rate. This makes a massive difference to our show's visibility and helps us to get our show out and about to others experiencing fertility treatment. 
IVF Tales is an independent production made by Amy and I. Music is by Vlad Gilyshenko. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts.